I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 85th episode of Talking Golf History, and a special Open Championship production celebrating the playing of the 150th Open at St. Andrews. Our show today is a unique two-part podcast with one of the world's greatest living golf historians, Roger McStravick of St. Andrews. Roger has won the coveted USGA Herbert Warren Wind Award twice, his first award in 2015 for his book In the Footsteps of Old Tom Morris, and last year's St. Andrew's Road War Papers. On top of all of his success, he's just a wonderful human being. Today, we dive into part one of A Golf Historian's Guide to St. Andrew's. Listen in as Roger and I take a little stroll through the streets of St. Andrew's and talk about all of the hidden history behind this beautiful town. I promise this podcast will only enhance your love for that old gray tune. And now, our show. Welcome back to Talking Golf History, Roger. Uh, good to be back. First and foremost, thank you for joining us again. And secondly, how excited are you for the 150th plane of the Open Championship? I, I, I am really excited, like probably more than I ever have for an open, you know, you know, the uh, the atmosphere in town is so exciting, you know, the stands up and, and there's just a buzz in the air already, you know, so, um, uh, so I am really looking forward to it. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the sort of champions play, you know, um, the legends of the games see, you know, to see them play. So, um, I Lots to look forward to that week, and um, and hopefully my mission for the week is to shake hands with Gary Player, um, purely because he shook hands at the centenary dinner with Willie Octoloni. Oh wow! And Willie Octoloni was a friend of Tom Morris's and played with Tom Morris, and you know, so I want to shake hands with someone who shook hands. With someone who knew Tom Morris. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say, I want to shake hands with somebody who shook hands who somebody who shook hands with old Tom Morris. <laughs> old Tom Morris. That's, that's literally how golf historians think, people, if you, if you want to know. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It just, it, it just brings it to life. You know, the, Gary Player has shaken hands with a man who shook, shook hands with Tom Morris. Yeah. You know, I just, uh, and played golf with him and was friends with him. It's three degrees of old Tom Morris. Yeah. Right, uh, completely. So, so that's my mission. So we can catch up after the open, and and either I'll be crying, yeah, <laughs> or, or I'll be saying I'm never going to wash my hand again. There you go. Right. Next time yeah. I see you, you'll have a glove on, like a you know, just never to be seen. <laughs> you'll take it off, and your hand will be all wrinkled from. <laughs> and golf history's Michael Jackson. That's right. Oh, there you go. Well, well played. And a little music history too. I got a strange question for you uh, before we start. Do you do anything personally as a golf historian to prepare for the Open at St. Andrews? Like you, you mentioned before we started, you have a ton of media. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I have a ton of media to do. Um, I wrote a book for Allianz, so I've got a lot of stuff to do there as well. Um, um, preparing for the Open is really just lining up all the things I have to do, you know. Um, one of my favorite text messages ever was from my friend uh, whose, um, whose wife is um, godmother to Nick Faldo's daughter. And um, he sent me a text saying, Nick Faldo wants you to sign his book. And honestly, I, you know, I've kept it and I want to frame it. <laughs> you know, just, yeah, when does that happen? Sign his book, you know, it just sounds so absurd. And it was just, and he was so lovely. And it was just, just the best sort of, you know, uh, hour or so 
you know, spending time with them. So, so yeah, just lining up meetings and um, I'm trying to catch up. Lots of friends are coming into town, so um, trying to meet up with them and stuff, you know. And, and I, I haven't um, had a glass of wine in a long time. I just, just not any particular decision, just haven't had a drink. And I am terrified of what's coming. <laughs> tsunami. That's right. Wine. 150th tsunami. <laughs> yeah, completely. So, um, so, so, yeah, I just, just. Yeah. So, note to self don't schedule podcast with Roger after the open, like the Monday after. We're going to cancel that one. <laughs> Unless you want sort of Barry White. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's, it's actually shot from your couch face down and the mic's in your face. I like that idea. You know me so well. I know. So the, the idea of this show hit me a couple years ago. Uh, the idea of getting uh, golf historians to come on the show and talking about not only their history of their, their course and club, but some of the historical places that surround their course and club. And I'll be honest with you, when I, when I came up with this idea the vision was St. Andrews because there's so much history that surrounds the course. And I think maybe people are going to be a little surprised how little we talk about the course. I don't want you to be disappointed about that, but the history that we dive into is so brilliant. So if you're attending the 150th open, or perhaps you're listening to this before your next trip to, to play the old course, we're going to do our best to recreate or create a walking podcast taking you on a short walk through St. Andrews and walking by areas and stories of interest. Roger, where should we start? Should we start at the end where the golfers will finish the 150th open? What do you think? The 18th green? Yeah, I, I think that's as good a place as any, you know, to start, you know, and <clears throat> listeners to your podcast will know about Tom Morris and the RNA and stuff. So I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but what I would just like to point out um, is is that arena by the 18th green. Uh, you know, obviously you have the RNA, uh, um, which is in a very imposing backdrop of your teeing off on the first. But then you have Alan Robertson's house, and and Alan Robertson is the reason we have the Open. You know, he he was the champion golfer. He was the best golfer in Scotland and therefore the world. But when he died, it left that open question of who's the new champion golfer. And, um, and Presswick created the open championship to answer that question. And that's why every year at the end of the tournament, you will get read out and the champion golfer of the year is such and such, you know, so, uh, so he lives right, you know, his was the first house on the links. A Which it's no longer there, correct? Alan's it's, house. It's just it's just been built built uh, over effectively, you know, because it was a little cottage and then it was a, a house and then effectively they've just um, I, I think they've just built and built and built, you know. So um, where is that? Where would that house be if you're on the 18th green? Where would it be situated? At the very end, at the very end on the corner of of the links and golf place. Okay, you know, did not know that. So, so Alan was there, and that's where, you know, um, he would make feathery golf balls, and where Tom Morris worked with him, you know, and um, I, I, I always hear the word apprentice, and that fills me with dread because Tom Morris and Alan Robertson were only five years apart, you know, um, I, they, they were friends. You know, when Alan had interviews, or Tom had interviews in later life, he would say, my friend, Alan. You know, so they were really good friends. Um, so on that point, just to, to, to sort of complete that sort of the, the visualization of what where we are. So you have Alan Robertson's house on the corner. Then a few doors down, you have Tom Morris's. Tom Morris, who created the Presswick course. He created the original open course. You know, won four open championships, is the oldest winner of the Open. 12 holes back in the day. Sorry? 12 oh, holes yeah. back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Presswick was 12 holes, which I think is a fantastic. You know, I, I've got a, a nine-year-old and a five-year-old uh, uh, children, and I would love a 12-hole course. You know? Absolutely. You get out there, and you could be home, and, you know, 
um, and then everyone's happy. Um, and and yeah, and Tom Morris still owns holds the largest margin of victory for the Open, and then his son is the reason why we play for the Claret Chug. You know, so because he won the champion's belt because he won it three times in a row, the original belt, and got to keep that. And then there was no trophy, you know. So, um, and then they commissioned the Claret Chug. It wasn't ready for 1872, but Tommy won it, won that competition that year. And then the next year in St. Andrews, 1873, you know, they presented Tom Kidd with the Claret Chug. But it's because of Tommy Morris that we play for the Claret Chug. Yeah. Well, and also because of Tommy Morris, that every player of every championship now gets a gold medal because they gave him the gold medal instead of the claret jug. So every single champion from young Tom Morris until the 150th winner of the Open Championship next week will receive a gold medal, which is a tradition really started with Tommy. Absolutely. Which I just think is an amazing continuation of the history. Yeah. Yeah, and it just... just you know, um, it, it just does a connection between the two, you know. Uh, I, I love the fact that, that they, they're getting what Tommy got, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got a weird question for you. So, oh, yeah. I was once told, or I probably read it somewhere, that there are dead bodies buried under the 18th green at the old course. What say absolutely you? True. No, it's absolutely true. And, and the pit is still there. So, uh, when... Tom Morris was creating the green. You know, there was a little green there, and what he wanted was a nice and large plateau green. And when the builders were were digging up the ground, uh, they came across, you know, bones after bones after bones, and then suddenly they realized this is actually a pit, you know. And what it was was a cholera pit, you know, from the, the, the pandemics in, in St. Andrews. Ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. I think I'll go for a walk. You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look, isn't there something you can do? I feel happy. I feel happy. Ah, oh, thanks very much. Touch off. Right. Right. Um, back in the, when they had these sort of pandemics, this pit area would have seemed almost out of town because there's no houses around. You know? So so this is why, you know, they didn't go onto an 18th green and dig up a hole and bury them. They, they actually just buried them what they perceived as out of town and a safe distance away, you know. Um, what year were these bodies put there, buried there? It, there are various pandemics in the 1600s and the 1700s, you know, um, in in St. Andrews. So it could, it could have been any one of them, really. But, uh, I mean, is it then possible, because golf was being played there, that they were taking them to the links to be buried? See, the links, the way, the way to understand the links, the links is common land. The links is not a, you know, a golf course. It's public land where people can walk. Even today, they'll walk on a Sunday and, and take their dogs. And, you know, um, it's, it's the course is closed so they can go and anybody can go and just walk over uh, the old course. You know, it, it is uniquely special in, in that way. Um, and this would have been deemed open, open land, you know, um, because the original 18th Green wasn't where it is now. It was, if you imagine, if you're playing the hole, and imagine about 50 yards, maybe 70 yards to your right, because there's no buildings there. So just imagine that, that it was just all grassland. You know the Himalayas? Yes. You know how undulating the Himalayas? Yes. That's, that's what the land was like. Like the really? Houses. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's a few things you can see um, from 1767 and sketches by John Elephant, uh, Oliphant. 
I should say, not elephant, oliphant. <laughs> and and they, they have very undulating land. But that's where the original 22nd green, I should be saying, to be technically accurate. Right. So the course has really shrunk in a footprint standpoint over that time. Um, well, it's, it's from, from a 22-hole to an 18-hole, yes. Yeah. But in terms of physical, because it, it, was, it was locked, you know, by the Eden Estuary and the sea. So, and so the reason why we play 18 holes, you know, is because people were trying to mimic St. Andrews. And St. Andrews could only, 18 holes was all the land would allow. You know, the first two, first two holes were too short, you know. Uh, if you think the 17th played in reverse, sorry, I'm trying to, so, so say you played down the 18th to the 17th green, and you divide that hole in half, that effectively what, you know, there were the opening two holes. And then the 17th, you divide that pretty much in half. That's the next two holes. Um, all they did was get a r- rid of those opening holes. Um, so, and, and that's where the, the changes came, you know. But, but the reason why we all play 18 holes is because that's all St. Andrew's land. Had room for. So let me ask you a question, and, and this one's really out of curiosity. I don't even know if you know the answer. You probably do. Uh, so the original teen area, uh, prior to old Tom Morris creating essentially you know, tee boxes, if you will, we used to tee it up on, on the green, a couple club lengths away from the hole. Yeah. So how did they tee off on the first hole? Like, <laughs> you, you get what I mean? Like, if there are no tee boxes and we tee off on greens, how do you start your round on the first hole? Are, they, are you playing off of the 18th green? Do you know how that was done? No, you are. You're playing within a couple of club lengths, and you're taking a, a scoop of sand from the bottom of the hole. You know, so so if you're a bad putter, always go out late in the day because the oh my hole, gosh, right? The, yeah, the size of a small canyon. <laughs> That's right. The holes get bigger as the day. So they tee off on the 18th green. That would essentially be the case. Yeah, that's what that's what they said. Two club lengths. Yeah, you know. So, um, but I, I I don't think I think there was a lot of flexibility about this. You know, I, I don't think you know. There's sometimes the the first tee when there's photographs of old Tom Morris teeing off, um, and and the first tee is about fifty or seventy yards further than where we tee off. You know, and then sometimes it's exactly where we tee off, which makes it very terrifying. Because when you tee off, you, you think, I've seen photographs of Tom Morris in this position. Absolutely. You know? um, so, yeah. So, but um, I, I think there was a large amount of flexibility. But but effectively, yeah, you know, your first hole in St. Andrews, before they did the land reclamation, before the first hole was manufactured, you know, and I say manufactured because it was landfill, effectively. It, that used to be the beach. Uh, they took all the... The rubbish from the town dumped it on the beach, leveled it off, and that is the first hole. Um, uh, but they would have played down the 18th as their first hole, you know. And I just, um, I think maybe the, the numbers of play maybe mitigated your chances of being hit by a golf ball. Sure, yeah, fewer people playing definitely in the feather ball area than we got in the gutty and, and of course the wound ball. Yeah, but also if you think of. The, the the width of the the back nine that was the width of the course because you know all you're doing um, is reversing that and going out and back the same way you know which is what the back nine is so much tougher it's the original links you know whereas the the front nine is what Tom created you know and that's certainly more gentle agreed so, right well he took back all the wins right I mean it was a narrow course back in the day yeah. for the longest time yeah no it, it truly was and it was um it, it was it was criticized for being overly easy you know because he's got rid of lots of the wind I, i've seen um old clipping saying please stay off the links as we're burning the wind you know and they burnt it you know and and it was lifted after that um to op- to create these lovely front nine fairways that we now know you know um but it was back in the day. It was a narrow course, which makes you even more appreciative of Alan Robertson's seventy nine, 
Absolutely. You know, and, right. And, and bunkers that weren't wrecked and greens that weren't, you know, you know, tailored, you know. Um, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was a very, very, very difficult course and, and much more difficult than it, it is uh, today. And I've actually got to play it uh, a couple of times and it is a joy to play. In reverse? Yeah. Yeah. Because obviously you've played the old course several million times, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't want people to be confused that Roger lives in St. Andrews and he's been lucky enough to play the old course. What he's saying is he's played it in reverse. Yeah. I, I can't even fathom how amazing that would be, playing it in reverse. You, you genuinely feel like you, you get you get hers in the back of your neck when you're teeing off for the first time anyway. And I still do. You know, I really do. Um, but on the... Uh, on the original routing, or as close to the original routing that that, that the this um, Snellers Links Trust can do, um, it it is you do feel like this is Alan's course. You know, this is the course that Alan, you know, would have known. You know, um, uh, obviously the first hole wasn't created by uh, when he by the time he died. You know. Um, or, or the 18th green, funny enough. But it would have been in the same position. It would have been a little small green in a hollow, exactly where it is today. Yeah, the, uh, the, the story of the uh, the cholera pits, it gives a new definition to the Valley of Sin, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no relation to the, the bodies found in the pit, but it's amazing little tidbit. It's kind of like Amen Corner. You know, the 12th yeah. green at Augusta National sits on an Indian burial ground. I don't know if you're aware yeah. of that. Yeah, that that's that's crazy. The the uh, the the color pit. Just uh, so your listeners know, it's it's if you're playing the hole, it's in the top right hand corner where you see it raising up. Really, so interesting. That, that's where the, um, they've obviously added lots and lots more soil on the top right. Thank corner. goodness, right? None of us need to get cholera playing the old course. Um, as we stand on the back of the uh, home green. We're standing in the shadow of the grand old RNA clubhouse that was built in 1854. The clubhouse, much like its membership, has expanded over the years. If someone were to gain an invite into that hollowed clubhouse, what might they expect to see? We won't spend a lot of time on the RNA clubhouse, but what might they see inside those hollowed doors? And perhaps if you could share maybe your favorite artifact or artwork inside the walls of the RNA. So, um, when you come in left, come in and then turn to the left. There's sort of the um, the informal sort of room where you can you can come in with your your golf clothes. But on the wall, it's Alan Robertson's clubs. Oh wow! Morris's clubs. I mean, it's just oh wow. That's what you will get in the RNA. It's the creme de la creme of golf history. Um, yeah, I. I um, it's difficult when I when I meet people there because. I really just want to go and look at the clubs. You know, Absolutely, see, yes. You know, you <laughs> when know. we're there, if you just want to walk away from me, or we could just stand there in silence and stare at them for a while, I, I would be all in. I mean, I was just recently at Pine Valley, and I annoy everybody who goes with me to Pine Valley because I always go to, they have a display right inside the clubhouse that has um, Hugh Philp clubs and Tom Morris clubs. Uh, and I, I mean, there's probably six or seven Hugh Philp clubs. And the first time I went there, we were supposed to be having lunch, and I stood for 45 minutes in front of this glass case. And they were just like, "What are you doing?" I just pulled them over and I started telling them the history of, you know, the Stradivarius of club makers, and yeah. it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and I, I, I don't know if you know or if your listeners might know. But Tom Morris's shop was Hugh Phillips. So, so that that shop, as a golfing shop, as a historically important, you know, there's nothing finer in the world. You know, it was Hugh Phillips, and then eventually became Tom Morris's over time. I didn't know that, you know? to be honest with you. And it used to be a little cart shed. Um, I, you know, so so when Philip had it, it was literally a cart shed. You know. And then eventually came where he made his clubs. And then eventually in, I think, 64, Tom took it over, you know. So um, I, 
but that as as a in historically important spot, you know that is that is special. So as we're standing inside of the RNA clubhouse, uh, is there maybe one takeaway or story you might be able to share from the RNA? Well, yeah, Jerry, just to continue that. So in the left was the room with where people can have a coffee and come in after they've played their golf. And then, um, but in the foyer, and it, it just takes my breath away every time, is the Claret Jug and Tommy's Belt, you know. And so you're, you're, if you're sitting and you're, or you're standing and you're, you're waiting to speak to the, the, the porter, the, um, um, it just, it's utterly breathtaking you know, to, to think, you know, this is the belt. This is the belt that Tommy won, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I, I could just stare blankly out my own window and just think about that. <laughs> it won't work very well on radio <laughs> or in a podcast. Um, uh, but then you go into the big room, big room of RNA, and there are portraits of Tom Morris, of Freddie Tate, of Her Majesty the Queen, which is an utterly beautiful portrait. Um, and, and, and it's just amazing. And you have the beautiful um, bay window there as well. So uh, it, it, it is it is a special, special place, you know, Um um, I absolutely love it if I have the chance to go inside. It is it is truly remarkable. And if you get the invite, it's is it jacket and tie or is it just jacket? No, no, jacket and tie. Okay. Jacket. Everyone at home, just in case you're visiting St. Andrews and you think you might get an invite, bring a jacket. Yeah. It, 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 but, it, but it is a wonderfully cordial club. Very friendly. So... Um, uh, and I think what the RNA has done, you know, over the centuries, um, um, was you know is is remarkable. And, and people don't realise that, that it was the Society of St Andrews Golfers, and even just before that, before they even formalised themselves. Um, but they were tending to the links and you know managing it before you know uh, it was it was taken over management of what was taken over but we wouldn't have the course today without the rna you know i think um their story is is, is seldom told you know it, it you know part of you know i'm researching them forever in the university archives and i'm finding letters you know from the 1800s of of you know members of the committee um talking about the upkeep of the course and the management of the links you know and they're doing it you know uh, they're managing the links and you know um and they employed Tom Morris, you know. So, um, so yeah. So it's it's a very special place, and I, I always feel it's a, a special occasion if I have the chance to go there. So we leave the RNA clubhouse and we cross the street at Golf Place and enter the RNA World Golf Museum that you have to visit when you visit St Andrews. For a mere eight pounds, you can learn about the history of golf and see artifacts that you won't be able to see anywhere else in the world. Roger, what is a must-see exhibit or item from inside the museum for you? Like, if you were to say, you need to see at least this item and this item. Like, don't pass over these items if you're in a hurry. Well, the, the thing the thing that I love about the museum and its development is that they've mixed timelines. You know, so it's not just done chronologically anymore. You know, you'll have Seve and Tommy Morris side by side sort of stuff you know and i i love that with an absolute passion uh they have interactive maps um they, and, and also you get a chance to to putt uh you know with the, the old hickory putters and gutty balls you know and they actually have a a, a feathery as well although um it would be a replica feathery. replica feathery absolutely i've got one over here on my desk i have yet to putt it that's i'm sad to say but i need to do you know what? It is absolutely fantastic to put with. It's like a bladder ball. It feels so light and so soft. Um, whereas the gutty ball is like putting with a billiard ball. I was going to say a rock, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, like a square rock. <laughs> yeah. Got no roll on it. Yeah. Whatsoever. I mean, a lot of people may, I mean, you think about these scores that were shot at the open. Or Alan Robertson's uh, 79. 
Um, I, I think you might know this, but for two years I played Gata Percha like exclusively. So I had a set from Mothabra, sorry, and uh, played you know a replica Gutty Ball. And what I noticed, you know, in playing in some tournaments, some Gutta Percha era tournaments, is that after I want to say three holes, my ball was no longer round. That was oh, the wow. observation because yeah. uh, it doesn't have the rebound characteristics of a, a you know a, a modern golf ball. And so one of two things are going to give either the club head, which does happen by the way. I have a a replica. Um, long nose that actually I played a bramble one day and it literally has the bramble dots that have imprinted in the head because in this case, the club head gave not the ball, but when you play the ball, it would go out of round, like, you know, within a series of holes. And then all of a sudden you're putting with this oblong object. It's really amazing. But my, my dream is to play with, the set that Tom Morris played with, or Alan Robertson played with, which was mostly woods, yes. you know, with maybe a retiring. Um, uh, you know, a bag of hybrids is probably how it would look to to the golfer today, you know. But I, I love I love the idea of that. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm definitely better better with woods than I am with irons anyway. It's um, perfect for you, Roger. It, it, it literally is. I, I, I really, you know, I want to have a bag of hybrids, but, you know, we should do this. Like, I think I'll, I'll procure a set, and I think, I'll be honest with you, I think it'd probably be better to play Musabra than the yeah. old course with that. Because I just think that, first of all, you're not going to have the same traffic. We'll definitely not hold up as many people. It's a nine-hole adventure versus holding people up for 18. <laughs> but it, wouldn't it be, it would be exciting, wouldn't it? Oh, oh, I honestly, I would love that. I would love that. Um, um yeah, I, I would absolutely love to just, I would just feel like, you know, I have more connection to that era, really, you know, I, than I do to, and I love Bobby Jones' story and um, and Francis Wiemet and but but I, I, I have more um, connection to Tom Morris, Alan Robertson, Tommy Morris. Yeah, know. we have the same affinity. And, and, and the other thing I tell people is, from that gutty era, is the game was what, much more raw. You know, you have these interesting men playing a game which people are still trying to figure out. You know, we've got the Open Championships being played on an 18-hole course, a 12-hole course, and a 9-hole course. Like, all these things are just, you know, abound. Like, we're all yeah. just figuring it out, kind of. And it's it's brilliant and raw and, and beautiful, really. Yeah. And, and an exciting time as well. You know, because, you know, you're never quite sure where it's going to go, you know? Yeah. Um, I, so, you know, because at one time, you know, obviously it was all about Edinburgh. You know, Edinburgh ruled the game. Yeah. Honorable so, company. So, yep. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then when, when they were in sort of financial difficulty, people started, you know, everything migrated to St. Andrews. So St. Andrews didn't invent the Open or the Amateur Championship or ladies golf union but things have just migrated to st andrews and that's why it is the home of golf really. we are terrible at sticking on topic by the way this is the problem of getting two golf historians together in the same room um <laughs> pick out two items that they must see at the at the world rna or the rna world golf museum and then we'll we'll take a step we'll walk up a hill here do you know what um it, it, it's such an experience that that it's it's hard to to pick out solitary items, um, you know, genuine Hogan stuff I love, um, Sevy stuff I love, but um, but it's the old films I I did really I could just sit and watch them all day, you know, um, I, you know because effectively this game is just you standing over a ball, and and hitting it. And just to see some of the guys, you know, who almost 100 years ago, I think, I might be wrong in this, but one of the earliest ones is the 1921 Open, you know, with Jock Hutchison one. Um, and they have that on film. Oh, um, wow. I didn't know that. So, yeah. So so it is, you know, it's Pathé film. So everything is, 
you know, it's, it's, everyone talks really fast and the game's really, you know, everything happens really quick and, and the crowds are walking really, really fast. You know, it's like and it's like the end of the Benny Hill show, if you remember that. But yeah. You know, everything happens in forward wind. But um, uh, but it is it's just a, a, a joy, a joy to see, you know, um, because they're only a stone's throw from from Tom Morris. You know, you think in 21, you know, Tom Morris is dead only about 13 years, you know. So, yeah, I just, I, I wish he was caught on film. No kidding, you know, right? Absolutely. You know, all we have is photos. All we have is photos. And, and, and film did exist at that time, you know. So Maybe um, someday a film will pop up, Roger. We never know. You know? Yeah. You never know. Yeah, no. That would be amazing. That truly would be amazing. Well, I'll tell you mine before we leave. I, I can never stop checking out the display of Alan Robertson's shop when I'm there. There's a, a there's a a very, and I mean this in a really cool way, like a old you know, 1980s Disney display like about looking into his shop and seeing the feathery shop. And I, I don't know, there's something, and you know, my affinity for Alan Robertson. So that probably, you know, is tenfold. Absolutely. But, um, it's so it has changed since then. So that, that was before the development. Oh, the okay. Whole, the whole museum has completely, uh, the whole space of the museum was completely, everything was taken out. Oh really? So, so now, if you look at it, um, it's completely different. You know, so it's it's like one big open space. Oh, I did it's not know that. Oh wow. Yeah, and it's now called the RNA World Golf Museum. Um, so it's a, uh, it, but but it's fantastic, you know. And I think those, um, and I I really loved that one as well. Um, although it. it it looked a bit like they'd, they'd taken somebody else and just called him Alan Roberts. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> you know, this this five foot two man is suddenly six foot. And yes, that's correct. Yeah, he's a giant moves. in the game. That's why, Roger. He's a giant in the game. Yeah. <laughs> so we leave the museum and we're going to take a turn to the macabre. We're heading up the hill, Roger, towards the aquarium. Is that correct? And what on that's earth are we doing going up this hill? Well, this hill is should be called Witch's Hill. We have found the witch. May we burn her? Who do you know she is a witch? She looks like one. Bring her forward. I'm not a witch. I'm not a witch. But you are dressed as one. They dressed me up like this. And this isn't my nose, it's a false one. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she's a witch! Did you dress her up like this? No! 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 Yes! Yes! A bit! A bit! A bit! She has got a wart! What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. I got better. Burn her This is the spot where witches were put to trial, trial by water, and executed. You know, burnt to death. So, um... Uh, and, and the lake underneath, or the water underneath, is co- was called Witch's Lake. That's like right outside the aquarium, correct? Absolute, that little, absolutely. Yeah, it's like a, a tidal yeah, pool. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And David Hare Fleming, who's one of my favorite historians, always called that the best beach down there, you know, because um, it was so beautiful and isolated. Um, but, but in, in the, the 1800s, you know, bones were washed up on the beach from people who, who had basically been um, who had been thrown off the cliff. Um, so maybe you should explain exactly what the trial by water was, you know. So the theory is this, and it's going to sound very Monty Python, so please bear with me. The thinking was that God's water would repel 
anybody who was devil worshipper or unbaptized, which were also seen in the same light back in those days. And um, so they thought if they threw a suspect witch into the water, um, she would either um, sink or float. Um, and she, if she floated, it was because the waters of God's water had repelled them and they were then taken up the cliff and then uh, burnt to death. And I said burnt, they were actually smoked to death because they used damp wood. So in effect, it was like a humane way of killing because basically after, you know, a short time, the, the smoke would, would overcome them and they would die. Um, so they weren't really burnt to death, although... Patrick Hamilton, um, the martyr who was uh, burnt to death outside San Salvador's on North Street, um, they used the wrong wood and they literally burnt him. To oh, death. wow. Yeah. So but there was a purpose between, you know, I, I suppose, the more humane way, if there is one, of burning somebody to death was to asphyxiate them essentially through smoke. Completely. Interesting. Completely, you know. Um, but but the witches themselves, you know, there weren't hats and brooms and, you know, and black cats, familiars. Um, the excuses for people um, being accused of a witch were so farcical, you know. If, if you'd run up debts in the local inn and didn't fancy paying them, you could just accuse the, the man who ran the inn or the lady who ran the inn of being a witch. And they'd go through trial by water. And, so when you, you say know, trial by water, they're throwing somebody into this this tidal pool, this pond, and essentially, if they don't drown, they're a witch. Is that is that the logic behind that? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like so you're gonna die, or you're gonna die. You're gonna drown, or you're going to smoke inhalation and then burn to death. Yeah, which was which was which was extremely uh, cruel, and and there is a, a movement at the moment to try to get all which I think is great, absolutely. Just, yeah, um, but yeah, it just. Um, I wonder, did they test this out? Did like any like you know non witches actually say, you know what, maybe I'll jump in the water and see if I drowned or I float, Roger? I, you know, oh crap, I'm a witch. I didn't even know. <laughs> What the hell? You know, like, or you know, if you're wearing bloomers and then inflated on your way down, and then suddenly oh, you're bobbing no, it's to be terrible. It's crazy. Shouting, it's my bloomers, you know. Just, the logic that know, they had back then just, is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, and I'm sure there were people sitting in the in the in the, the meetings with their head in their hands, going, "This is just nonsense," you know, because and they were ridiculous. Um. Uh, you know, people re- were accused of witches. There was, there was one couple of ladies who were, I think one's called Melville, and um, a, and they helped the Archbishop of St. Andrews get well by doing it, like give him a potion, a mixture of sort of herbs and flowers and stuff, and he got well again. But then they said, can we get paid? Yeah, I just want to get paid for helping you out. Right, yeah. Yeah, and then he went, witch! <laughs> and... And basically, and they were accused of being witches. And then the poor, the poor of the two, poor lady, you know, a uh, working class lady, she was immediately tortured and then executed. The the the, the lady who's called Melville came from a, a sort of a well respected family, um, so she was she um, she eventually got off. But the stain of being accused of being a witch hung around her, and then. You know, a few years later, she was accused of being a witch again and executed, you know. So, but she got executed because she helped. Yeah, and all she wanted to do was get paid for it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm telling you, right? Yeah. It's crazy. And, and you know, in uh-huh. this period lasted for like 100 years. And from what I read a little bit on, um, you know, they'd be thrown into, I suppose, witch's pond. And, you know, of course, if they didn't drown, they were then accused of being a witch, and they were burnt or smoked out, I suppose, at the stake near the Martyr's Monument at the top of the hill. Yeah, absolutely. Which has its own meaning. I mean, maybe if you could dive in a little bit to Martyr's Monument, just because I know people see that obelisk and and probably ask themselves, you know, what's the history behind that? 
Yeah, and that's a monument for the Protestant martyrs, you know, people who were who were um, killed by the Archbishop of St Andrews, you know, um, and it's a beautiful monument. Um, um, but they, they were a superstitious bunch in the in those years. So you know, and in the in the sixteen hundreds, and this, and even I think the last one was about seventeen. 10, 1720, around that time, was the last one. So, so at the same time as all this superstition and and it is farcical. And um, I'm writing a book for Creole, and and that also involves the witch trials. And one man was convinced that a wasp in his in his uh, shed was an old lady down the street who had transformed herself into a wasp. You know, and uh, I mean, just kill the wasp. She's dead. You're fine. You don't need to burn her. <laughs> right? he, was, he, he was too terrified because you know, he thought there was a shape shifting old lady who lived oh. on her own at the end of the street. You know, so um, I'm, so I'm sure all the golfers, there's no golfers on this listen to the show that are superstitious. So they have no idea what you're talking about of <laughs> illogical thoughts that may affect their golf game. <laughs> <laughs> got to wear these socks or I'm not going to shoot a, in the seventies today. Absolutely. I've got my lucky coin. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's changed in some ways. Yeah. We're going to leave martyrs monument and cut through Murray park. Where are we heading and what are we about to see Roger? Um, well, we're going to come on to North street, you know, and to the right is Tommy Morris's house at one Albany place. Um, and this is the house uh, where he stayed with his wife um, briefly, you know, obviously it ended tragically um, when Tommy's wife died and child stillborn, you know. But this is the house where he ran down North Street and Reverend Boyd was at the door saying, I'm sorry for your loss. And he said, it's not true, it's not true, and ran upstairs and his wife was dead um, to, to in childbirth. Um, so yeah, so and and honestly, when you walk along the street, you'll pass it because it's just a grey house that blends in to another grey house, you know. Um, but it's such a poignant spot, you know, especially in the Tommy story, you know, it, it truly is. Um, um, and I, the, the one thing I would say, you know, in the movie, because people have quoted this to me in time, going, oh no, no, I think you'll find Thomas having a good day on the golf course at North Barrack when he was playing with Tommy and that's why he put the telegrams in his pocket and didn't let him. was like, no, that's not true at all. You know, so the truth of that story um, of that day was that Tom and Tommy were playing a match against the Parks at North Barrack. And uh, the Morris has won. The game is over. Uh, a telegraph's brought to Tommy um, saying, please come on quick, your wife's in difficulty in labour. Um, they were going to go via train, etc. Um, but then somebody says, I can get a boat. And that took a bit of time, but eventually it came around. The boat had just pulled away. They were within uh, distance of being heard and being able to be stopped. But the telegram came and then the crowds there said, someone in the crowd made the decision, no, just let them go. So Tommy did not know all the way across to St. Andrews, whether his wife was alive or dead. And and I find that really, really poignant, you know, and I kind of wish that had been captured in the, in the film, but in the film, um, which is fantastic for a lot of different reasons, but in the film, they made out that Tom was having a good day in the links and he'd buried the telegrams, telegram, sorry. And that's just, just not true. Not the case. The truth yeah. itself is probably harder to, to, to take really, you know, it's more dramatic. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Poignant place to stop. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and, and things about Tommy Morris, and I'm sure you you have done lots and lots on Tommy, but, and the question comes up, you know, would he have designed courses like his dad? Would he have gone on and designed so many more courses, you know? Um, And and, uh, your good friend Stephen Proctor and I had a lovely chat there just last week when he was in town about, you know, why didn't Tommy win in 73? You know, 
Um, and and my theory on that was Tommy grew up on the Presswick course and he knew every blade of grass. Um, you know, and then he come he came here when he was thirteen and um and he's learning a whole new course. So um so and where he didn't know every blade of grass. So he didn't have the advantage he had at Presswick, you know. So um but yeah, so just a, a wonderful golfing icon. So you have a note here that says the nineteen twenty one Jock Hutchinson on this street. What what was that note? Did I get that wrong? Yeah, no, absolutely. Jock lives on the same street. He did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did not know that. Where where was he at? So so he's he's at number thirty. He's right at the other end near the cathedral. And and Jock, uh, you know, open champion in the nineteen twenty one open champion. Um, but the controversy regarding Jock was that you know so he, he at the 1921 Open. Well, first he's born and raised in St Andrews, correct? Oh, absolutely, through and through, 100. Yeah. You could, you know, 100 uh, St Andrews born and bred. Um, so then he wins the 1921 Open by winning a playoff against Roger Weatherhead, and um, currently living in America at the time. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the crowd are ecstatic. You know, local boys won the, the Open. This is going back to the days of Morris. And, you know, it's exciting. You know, our local boy has won won the Open again. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm the first American to win. You know. Uh, oh, Roger. Man, how do you lose a crowd that quick? <laughs> yeah. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Know your audience. <laughs> know your audience, Jock. Yeah. Good it, Lord. And the very thought of taking the trophy out of Scotland was abhorrent. You know, it was it was that bad. You know, and um and three cheers were called not for Jock, but for Roger Weatherhead. You know? Oh. And I thought that I thought that was romantic drama, but then I've seen it in the citizen that's written. You know, three cheers for Roger Weatherhead. <laughs> and that other person, whatever his name is, you know. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? I mean, so, what is yeah. Jock thinking? I mean, do we have, do we know anything about his state of mind to make that <laughs> statement? I mean, it's, I, I mean, you know, I, I think you know this, but I did that podcast with, with Stephen. Um, well, I don't know if that was that last year or this year. I can't keep track with COVID anymore, where I held... Uh, Jock Hutchinson's 1921 Open Championship medal. And on it, you know, it says British Open Champion. It's the only open medal I've ever seen that says British Open. Clearly, that wasn't inscribed in Scotland. It was most likely done in the United States. And you wonder, you know, did Jock ask them to put that? Because of so we could differentiate it between the U.S. Open because you know obviously the British Open moniker, if you will, really kind of originated. I don't know if it originates, but it, it's popularized in the United States in let's call it the 1920s because we were calling our U.S. Open the Open, right? Because nobody really besides you know Harry Varden, uh, Ted Ray, uh, Wilfred Reed. And J.H. Uh, Taylor were coming over here. So it was just our open. And so yeah. all of a sudden, in the 20s, there's this back and forth of Americans going to both opens. And British Open becomes this popular moniker that sticks around. And I know we're trying to rid people of saying British Open. <laughs> but, and, and yet, here's this 1921 medal that says British Open on it. And I thought to myself, you know, did Jock... Ask them to put that on there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I'd, I'd be surprised if it was done here, I have to say. But yeah. to, to Jock's credit, you know, he did a lot for the Open, you know, and, and raising the profile of it, you know. So that's why you see Jones coming here and stuff, you know, you know that whole generation. Um, and that's a lot to do with, with with Jock, you know, the come here and the stay at the, the Grand Hotel and, you know, just behind the 18th Green at that time. And, um, and so, so he, he absolutely does... You know, make up for, uh, for yeah, his decision winning it for America. Because <laughs> I'm an American, damn it! <laughs> Who are you, people? <laughs> he, he made America great again. Yeah. Oh man, he had to go there. <laughs> um, 
Let's let's continue walking. Uh, it looks like we're going to cut through Market Street to South Street. Where are we heading, Roger? So actually, if, if we just take it sort of, um, we're actually right at the principal's nose. Um, How do you figure? So, I think I, we're not on the course, folks. I don't. I, I, this is not a bunker we're looking at. What is the principal's nose in St Andrews? So the principal's nose, and where the phrase comes from, yeah, is basically um, there was a, a large porchway outside the principal's residence, uh, which is on South Street. And but when Playfair, Sir Hugh Lyon Playfair, came back to St Andrews in the eighteen twenties, um, and started a revolution of of cleaning the town up and creating these uh, beautiful streets and beautiful housing and improving the links, you know, it was nothing short of a revolution. Yeah, the town was really kind of in a state of despair, was it not, before he arrived? It was, just, you know, because first of all, the the town was this glorious place of pilgrimage. Uh, For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, people would be coming to be near the bones of St. Andrew. And... um, uh, in the summer of 1559, um, John Knox gave a speech at Holy Trinity Church uh, about the cleansing of the temple and removing all the, the symbols of Romanism from the church, you know, and uh, and riled up the locals and the locals went out and tore down uh, not only the cathedral, which was responsible for 30% of the town's employment, but also the Greyfriars Cathedral and also the Blackfriars Cathedral, like completely decimated the economy of St. Andrews. Yeah. I mean, it took 150 years to build that cathedral and one day to ruin it. One day to ruin it. (laughs) Absolutely. And, 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 and the bones of St. Andrew disappeared at that time. So we don't, Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. We don't know whether they were destroyed by the, the mob or whether somebody managed to get them away. But, um, but yeah, I mean, but, yeah. first I gotta ask you: Was John Knox a golfer, and if so, was he known for his temper on the old course? <laughs> no, he was very puritanical. You know, <laughs> he really was. He was accused of being a witch. Funny enough, uh, yeah. probably by you know maybe somebody that was Catholic. I don't know where that would have come from. And <laughs> um, it, it was actually by a father who basically said that he had put a trance upon his his daughter. You know, to so. burn down a cathedral, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it in, uh, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of John Knox. You know, I think um, fair enough. He had, a, you know, the changes were coming, but um, um, I, it, you know, to replace it with another form of bigotry, it, it means you haven't learned a thing. Um, uh, they were odd uh, times, though. Let's face it. Between you know all the superstitions and. You know, spells and witches, and there was all kinds of things going on that education probably might have solved in another era. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I know we, we shouldn't be too judgmental, you know, but to them, witches were a thing, and the death yeah. was a thing, and, you know, and shape shifting was a thing, you know, um, and uh, the 22 hole golf course was a thing, you know, so. Um, uh, so, anyway, so, so back to principles notes. So there was a large porchway um, outside of, of the principal's residence. And Playfair wanted to, um, he wanted a clean, wide, open boulevard. If you know South Street now, you can see how a lovely wide street and a straight line. That's because that's what um, Playfair wanted, you know. And if people wouldn't do certain things, he'd bag the house from underneath them and make the changes himself. So the principal had... A porchway, and the porchway was known as the principal's nose. And there's a brilliant poem um, around that time that says, um, e- "Even the principal's nose, he means to cut off." So that's the original principal's nose. And so, does it exist in its original form? The principal's nose. Does it like if you would you notice it if you visited this area? No, absolutely. It just looks like a straight wall now, you know. Um, but the building's still there. You know, that's the joy of St. Andrews. You know, the buildings are all from the 1500s, etc. are still there. Yeah, so the, unfortunately, the only principal's nose you may see now is the bunker that's on the old course. Yeah, absolutely. And and I hear all sorts of stuff about, oh, it's after the principal who had a, a large nose. But if you see Principal Haldian, who was the principal at that time, you know, he, he doesn't have a large nose. Yeah, the, you, you say there's a connection here between the Mary Queen of Scots. Is that correct? 
So Mary, Queen of Scots, when she came to St Andrews, um, stayed on South Street, you know. So and she practiced archery on South Street. Um, she did not play golf, and that might come as news because there's lots has been written about you know she, the first female known golfer. Yeah, your first lady golfer, you know. But uh, Professor Neil Miller, who's a fantastic golf historian, and he has a, a new book coming out probably in the next month or so. Um, he is fantastic at going back and, and looking at these stories and go, well, actually, is that true? And looking at the evidence. And the only evidence that Mary, Queen of Scots, played golf was the evidence in her trial that they used in her trial. And they said, because um, her husband... That was, was of the her, the murder of her husband, Lord... I'm going to screw this up. Darnley? Does that yeah, sound right? Absolutely. Okay, wow. I can't believe I remembered that. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I even know that information? What's wrong with my brain, Roger? <laughs> <laughs> and then two, two days, two days after his death, she was seen, uh, supposedly seen playing golf around the grounds of Seton Palace, you know, um, just outside Edinburgh. But that's it. This is the this, this sort of... Um, I, I, I like to tell people, else. Roger, that's the first uh, O.J. Simpson scenario where... You know, you're you know the people are wondering who killed Lord Darnley, and like O.J. Simpson, looking for the killer on the golf course. Yeah, <laughs> right. Absolutely. So that's the only evidence that she played golf. That is the only evidence. You know, hmm. um, so much has been claimed. You know, you know, and and you know, as an historian, we should never say never. You know, because there, there may well come out documents, but but for for people. Um, for generations before her, there are receipts of golf balls and golf clubs. And for her sons and, and generations after, there's receipts of golf. You know, their, their life was done meticulously, you know. Um, and, I, I've, you know, I've read uh, a book by her sort of right-hand man, and there's no mention, you know, of golf whatsoever in her life, you know. Um, but archery, definitely. She definitely played archery in St. Andrews. You know, that that's fairly common knowledge you know so. do do we know where she stayed on south street oh yeah absolutely yes yeah. so, oh we do yeah yeah absolutely it's further down south street and towards the cathedral which um, is where we're going to be heading next so yeah. as we walk down do we know where where about do you, uh, you so there's the no outside, way you know the address off the top of your head and, <laughs> not off the top of my head but i can point to it i can show you the actual place you know uh, yeah and it, it, again it just looks like it's blending in to the other houses that look like they're from the 1500s, but um, um, but the, but if you, come, if you come around the other side, uh, there you can see there's a beautiful garden. That's where she would have practiced, and also the library of St Leonard's School. And beside that, they have Mary Queen of Scots' bedroom, and it's still stylized as Mary Queen of Scots' bedroom. Yeah, it's beautiful, um, and also the, the library is supposed to be is is uh, is haunted. I have friends who, it's now a mech school, but my friends went to it when it was a girls' school, and they would say they wouldn't, they wouldn't spend any time in that library alone. Um, oh, I like this. <laughs> yeah, I like where that's yeah, going. Just, yeah, no, absolutely. With St. Andrews, honestly, the place is filled with witches and ghosts and, and you know, very, very, very um, fascinating, dramatic history, you know. Do, do you hear people talking today of ghosts at St. Andrews out of curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's, there's ghost tours, you know, and, um, and I know Linskill was particularly uh, obsessed about the ghosts of St. Andrews, you know, uh, and there's ghosts in the, the cathedral towers. Yeah. If ever there were a place to have ghosts, it would be St. Andrews. Don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, between, there's just so much crazy history yeah. in that little town. And, 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 the St. Regulus Tower, you know, the tower and the cathedral, you know, that's supposed to be haunted as well. So sometimes people have said they've gone down and they've seen somebody dressed as a monk. You know, it could be a student. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> who, who hadn't got home from the night before or something. That's right. Lost. Monk party. Um, but um, uh, but it is, uh, it is, it is fantastic. You know, it really is. And, and Linskill's, has a book on his ghost stories as well, I think. This concludes part one of our two-part podcast 
of A Golf Historian's Guide to St. Andrews. On part two, we extend our tour down South Street to the ruins of the cathedral and then work our way back to the old course. The stories that follow are absolutely amazing, including the naming of St. Andrews, a mob with torches, and a golf match that ended for no reason. A special thanks to the comedic genius of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you haven't seen the movie, you haven't quite yet lived. As for St. Andrews, this town serves as more than a hub for golf enthusiasts. This modest gray tune on the east coast of Scotland serves as the heartbeat of our game. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>